Welcome to Victorian Samplings, the podcast that speaks with artists, curators, scholars and crafters about Victorian objects and the stories they tell. I'm Vanessa Warren. What can we learn about creation, collaboration and inspiration from craftspeople of the Victorian era and from artists in our own moment? This episode's exploration of both art and craft begins with the ladies' carpet, a mid-Victorian collaborative work created by 150 needlewomen that Morna O'Neill brings to our attention. We also hear from Sandra Kloak, a contemporary artist who works with human hair, exploring and adapting the methods of 19th century craftspeople. And our team is delighted to bring you a conversation with Hannah Claus, an artist of Ganyangahaga and English ancestry, who spoke with me about interlacings, an installation that responds to a William Morris carpet and to the food harvesting culture of the Suguapan people. Let's begin with Jessie Cron's interview with Morna O'Neill about the carpet that lay beneath Queen Victoria's feet on a red-letter day for high Victorian design, May 1st, 1851. I'm Jessie Cron. I'm joined today by Dr. Morna O'Neill. Morna teaches art history in the art department of Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Today, we'll be discussing Morna's research on the ladies' carpet, a notable object made through collaboration during the Victorian period. Could you tell us about the history of the carpet, Morna? The ladies' carpet actually came about as the result of a very practical suggestion. In the run-up to the Great Exhibition of 1851, the designer and decorator W.B. Simpson, along with the architect J.W. Pathworth, were trying to understand how they could raise Britain's artistic and design profile in a developing international competition with France. They thought that if they came up with a project for the skilled needlewomen of Great Britain to demonstrate their industriousness and artistry, and that they were indeed equal, as they said, to, quote, the looms of the continent, end quote. Trying to give you a capsule visual description of the carpet is challenging, And I have to admit, for a long time, I thought I wouldn't know what it looked like. In all of the literature, it is mentioned as untraced, whereabouts unknown. And in fact, I was staring at images of the Great Exhibition, trying to figure out where it was displayed. And then as I was looking closely, I realized it is in fact the centerpiece of one of the most famous visual records of the Great Exhibition. And this is Henry Courtney Seelis' painting, the opening of the Great Exhibition by Queen Victoria on the 1st of May, 1851. And you can see the diminutive queen standing on uh, a very large carpet. Uh, Red and green accents dominate in a very intricate design. Uh, We can make out red roses and green vines. There is an inner rectangle. Um, Don't know why, but in the painting, the inner rectangle was covered by another carpet. So there's a sort of carpet on top of a carpet in the painting. But when we look at the the design whose image I was finally able to uncover in the British Library collection, there are small union jacks in the four corners of the carpet, and then two union jacks sort of crested in the center. In the very heart of it, um, the cross of St. George with the intertwined initials um, V and A. 
paying homage to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. I was actually looking at the design the other day and I realized that um, in the outer border there are these ovals and in the red ovals are the interlocking initials of the male design committee. Then, actually, in smaller fields of blue are the initials of all of the needlewomen who made the carpet, 150 in all. So we don't know all of their names, but we do at least have their initials or their signature. The carpet is actually perhaps what we would more uh, today call an embroidery. Uh, and it was executed in medium that was popular and controversial uh, in the mid-19th century. It was called Berlin Woolwork. Berlin because it came about in the German city. Uh, and this process might be familiar to any listeners who have purchased and executed cross-stitch kits. Uh, a picture or a design would be divided into a grid and transferred to a coarse canvas, so of the kind that you'd think maybe you wouldn't be uncomfortable putting on a floor. The patterns were prepared by men, and the coloring instructions were usually created by girls. So the ladies' carpet, this design created by Papworth and approved by a committee of gentlemen, was cut into 150 squares, each measuring two by two feet. Uh, that design was then transferred to these canvas squares. Each needlewoman was given one square to execute, and then they were joined together to create a carpet um, that measured 20 by 30 feet. So pretty big piece of work. Contemporary discourses on needlework portray it as an appropriate field for female artistic expression, as opposed to the professionalized sphere of the fine art of painting. And I was actually introduced to this project by research I was doing on one of the male artists who was a member of the committee. And we could say that a kind of gendered sphere influences the um, entire production and reception of the carpet. So a design by a male architect, labor by female needlewomen, kind of public art display combined with the sort of private domestic practice of needlework, the imaginative quality of the designer versus the perceived imitative quality of the, the female executant. But embroidery, as the art historian Pamela Garish Nunes pointed out, could be an important analog to artistic training. And it reminded me that going back to the 1780s, one of the most popular attractions in Leicester Square was Mary Linwood's embroidery gallery, which contained copies of famous works of art that she had executed in embroidery. This was also a crucial way for women to participate in the artistic economy. As one of the unknown needlewomen noted, a large-scale carpet such as this one could provide employment for women. And at the presentation of the carpet, this is what one of the participants is supposed to have said. It is hoped that it illustrates an elegant branch of British industry and taste and that it develops a source of manufacture which may afford employment to many, especially to those on whom the hand of adversity has been laid. So this idea of allowing women a way to participate in the economy, to create a kind of crafted, creative object, but one that was at the same time entirely dependent upon large-scale industrial manufacturer to create the kind of canvas that was required for this project, and the sort of industrialized printing of needlework patterns that enabled the practice of Berlin woolwork to begin with. The carpet seems to me to be this really fascinating mix of different discourses clashing together in the moment that they seem to be solidifying. So when I look at this carpet, I'm reminded of the work of literary scholar Talia Schaeffer. Um, in her book, Novel Craft, she talks about the mid-Victorian craft paradigm 
and the ways in which the industrial is actually turned to enable the handmade. And I think the ladies' carpet is a kind of perfect example of this process. What's really fascinating is that by 1886, for example, the burgeoning arts and crafts movement would completely disavow this type of embroidery, Berlin woolwork specifically, as a kind of rote industrial work. Uh, but at this moment, the moment of its display and, and execution in 1850, 1851, it seemed to be this really fascinating nexus for all of these ideas about artistic practice, craft, gender, industry, manufacture, that are still in the process of formation. You mentioned the queen was depicted as diminutive in comparison to the carpet in its representation at the Great Exhibition. Could you remind us what the Great Exhibition was, and could you expand on the significance of that representation? So the Great Exhibition of 1851 was planned as a kind of industrial trade fair. It grew out of a series of exhibitions at the Society of Arts in the 1840s that were hoping to showcase British economic and industrial development and really um, position Britain not only as the workshop of the world, but also as a kind of financial center and hub for trade. What we see happening at the Great Exhibition is the bringing together of a myriad display of objects that are really given a very fascinating to us today, I think, taxonomy that has to do with um, the materials that they're made of. So the transformation of raw materials into manufactured object. And what I think happens when we get into this taxonomy of objects at the Great Exhibition is we get an insight into something like the ladies' carpet sort of existing at the interstices <laughs> of these taxonomies. So one of the things that I find so fascinating is that the ladies' carpet was um, a huge hit there's lots of commentary on it, which is why it seems so strange for so long that there was no picture of it. One of the things that is often noted about it is its status as a kind of oddity. It's, it's featured in the volume that comes out of the Great Exhibition called Dodd's Industrial Curiosities. <laughs> so this idea, I think, of the scale of the object, the fact that it was created by women, that it's a collaborative um, project of, of so many different needlewomen, and also that when it was um, put in the exhibition, it was actually categorized as industrial work, or the other name given to that category was ornamental industry. One of the fascinating things to think about is Queen Victoria actually standing on <laughs> a carpet made by 150 of her subjects and really very consciously made for her dedicated to her. And in some ways, I think that when you see the vast outlay of the carpet and then you see the very small Queen Victoria standing on it, I think it's meant to suggest, or it suggests to me at least, the kind of power that can come from something small. Um, the idea of an individual square then being added to other squares to create this large work. The idea of the individual stitch, which is, in a sense, abstract, but once it's combined with all of these other stitches, sort of coheres into making a design. What's fascinating, though, is that it was perceived as a success in terms of its industry, that it was considered very well executed, but there was a growing dissatisfaction with its design. 
And this, I think, is where the object comes into contact with the sort of growing discourse around the aesthetics of British industrial manufacture and the movement that really comes out of the the objects on display at the Great Exhibition, this idea that Britain needs design reform, that it has the industrial might to create things, but that artisans need to be better educated about the principles of good design. When commentators looked at the carpet, they decided that it was very well executed, but that the design had some kind of infelicities to it. What I find so fascinating also in a kind of strange um, imperialist parallel, the women of Ireland also made a carpet. It was smaller (laughs) and it was considered less well done. Um, So there's this sort of fascinating imperial dimension to the ladies' carpet as well. To me, the carpet's production is a fascinating insight. It's a point along a continuum in a debate that spans the 19th century in Britain about artistic identity. What does it mean to be an artist and who has access to that category? Certainly from a gendered point of view, it's a a high point of production, but a low point in terms of recognition. And what's fascinating when you think about needlework carpet manufacture, embroidery, perhaps one's mind automatically goes to the later arts and crafts movement. And one of the the things that I've been trying to unravel in my mind is the ways in which the arts and crafts movement, in fact, invested in the gendered hierarchies that perhaps the ladies' carpet was trying to um, explore more broadly or, or wasn't as interested in maintaining a kind of strict gender hierarchy. So, you know, through Anthea Callan's wonderful work, we know so much about the women who participated in the arts and crafts movement. And in fact, recent research has told us a lot more about Mae Morris as a designer and executor in relationship to the, the work of her Um, Father William Morris, but there really was this kind of masculine, heroic masculine cast to the arts and crafts movement that I think gives a a kind of double edge to their dismissal of Berlin woolwork. Dismissal of it as industrial, but I think also a dismissal of it as a kind of private, domestic, feminine practice. It seems that industrialization usually compounds gendered hierarchies. But here there seems to be a paradox where women's labor is gaining a wider platform, but it's also bound to a specific mechanism like industrialization. Or it seems like industrialization is being gendered. Yes, yeah, I think this idea of the sort of gendering of industrialization is a really important point. In a way, I think it goes back to this moment when industrialization was transforming domesticity and that that meant that women were participating in industrialization in a different way, and that there becomes this kind of codification of it in the the 1850s and 60s that um, I think becomes more rigid in the sort of boundaries that it establishes between public and private, between industrial and artistic. To conclude, and to give listeners time to go admire their own carpets, (laughs) thank you so much for joining me today, Morna. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Hi, my name is Sandra Kloak, and I'm a hairwork artist based in Winnipeg on Treaty 1 territory. I make artworks with human hair as well as creating commission pieces for my customers as sentimental or memorial keepsakes. 
I first started seeing hair work pieces in a historical context when I was visiting historical museums and homes, which is something that I've always loved to do and continue to do. I would see these amazing pieces, often wreaths hanging on the wall, as well as jewelry that was made from hair. And I was just completely fascinated by that art and the idea that I was seeing a piece of someone's body from a long time ago. And it was just a really amazing, tangible way to connect to humans that I otherwise would only know about from books and a way to really get a personal connection to them that you would definitely miss from the history books and the names and the dates and that kind of way of interacting with history. So uh, for many years, I sort of admired these pieces and was really fascinated by them. One day about four years ago, I just, after a, a bit of thinking, I'm like, you know, I'd really love to do this. I'd really love to have a piece of my own hair. I'd really like to see if anyone's interested in this. I'd really like to just make art from hair because I think it's such a powerful medium. And so I put a call out on my personal Facebook, just in general, saying if anyone has hair, I really want to do this. And I had kind of, I've talked about this kind of stuff. It wasn't a... People weren't shocked to hear that kind of thing from me, but certainly lots of different reactions. But I got several donations up front, uh, kind of surprised, but I was very happy to find that there was just hair hanging around that needed a use. And I've been getting donations ever since without asking anymore. <laughs> so the hair work art that I practice is based on the traditional craft and traditional technique that is called specifically wire work or wreath work, and it involves creating gimps, which are a series of hair looped and fastened with wire to often create flower or foliage type shapes that you'd see in a wreath. Um, so the technique I use is traditional, but oftentimes my pieces end up having a bit more of a modern flavor. I like to do things that are a bit more minimalist and show off each flower instead of such a dense technique that you often see in historical pieces. I've done some different pieces that I would say kind of explore the the reaction almost that I get from, from hair work from some people. So I've created a mask, a piece that I really enjoyed making. It's a mask with a wire base and it almost speaks to that visceral response of fear and revulsion that people actually have to that piece and sometimes other pieces. And I think it speaks to the way that hair is this very interesting material and has such a strong importance in our culture and this dichotomous sort of role that it plays. It's, it's in certain carefully structured circumstances, it's this absolutely coveted, beautiful material. When it's on your head, when it's styled, it's something that people want and they desire and they care for. But when you find hair in places that you don't expect or you don't approve of, whether it's in your food or, you know, in the drain or in a more, in, in the social context, hair on parts of the body that you, that are not acceptable, there's these very strong reactions. And I, that's why one of the reasons I really love working with it as a material, because it's just, there's so much there. There's so much. There's a sentimental side and there's this other side. And I just find it kind of this so rich as far as a material. One thing I like to do as well is experiment with different media and combine it with hair in the similar way that hair is this very powerful part of the body. Um, I have been experimenting with adding cat claws. I should 
clarify, that's the casings of cats that, <laughs> that if any cat owner will know are all over your house. <laughs> I'm not removing claws from any cats for my art. Um, so I did a rose piece and the, the rose, the roses were made of hair. One was actually made from my po postpartum hair loss. So that had its own significance. And then I used the cat claw sheets as the thorns. And I just, I enjoyed sort of experimenting with different uses of different bodies. And I am also experimenting with now I'm going to be moving into commissions for pet hair work. So there's all sorts of different, <laughs> different beings that can be incorporated in this and celebrated. And I, I did a piece for someone as a commission with her hair and her cat's whiskers. So kind of fun. One thing that I'm working on now is launching my flat work portfolio. And this is a different style of hair work because there are several where you're pasting hair and cutting it into shapes. And so it's nice because you can use a lot shorter hair. The other style, you need quite a long amount of hair to make, to make significant pieces. But here I can use shorter hair and I can also use pet hair. So I'm really excited about that. So I do commissions for my customers who are wanting pieces from hair they have, whether it's from someone who's passed away as a memorial keepsake or a sentimental keepsake from hair of their child's first haircut, or even something as fun and whimsical as just their own hair made into a hair embellishment they can wear in their hair. So there's a lot of variation and it's Something I really enjoy because especially, of course, with the sentimental and memorial pieces, there's a lot of responsibility there. There's a lot of care work involved. Um, you're being trusted with this absolutely precious material. And it comes back to the tradition that that we see, you know, that originate where her hair work originated. While a lot of hair work was made in the home because that value of sentimentality and authenticity was so important to keep close to home, people were also sending hair out to professional hair workers. And so that's kind of what I do. And it's something that I really enjoy and really complements my personal practice. If you're interested in seeing my work or learning more about what I do, you can visit my website at corporealcurios.com or my Instagram and Facebook sites at corporealcurios. Thank you to Sandra Kloak for joining us on Victorian Samplings. On a personal note, Sandra introduced me to hair work in 2017, and I feel fortunate to be one of the students with whom she's shared her knowledge. We continue our exploration of connections between Victorian material culture and the work of contemporary artists with an interview with Hannah Kloss. I began by asking Hannah, whose installations are part of important public collections, including that of the National Gallery of Canada, to tell us about herself and about her artistic practice. Um, well, my name is Hannah Claus. I'm a visual artist of Kanyakahaga and English background. Kanyakahaga is the name that uh, most people know as Mohawk people. And uh, I guess I'm based in Montreal, Jotjage, and I have been a assistant professor at Concordia University as of August 1st for frameworks and interventions in Indigenous art practices. I'm primarily an installation artist, though I also do uh, video, as you will, as you will hear about. <laughs> and I grew up in St. John, New Brunswick and Fredericton, New Brunswick, so by the Bay of Fundy. But my uh, grandfather's community is Tyndanaga, 
which is in Ontario near Belleville. And uh, I'm a member of the Tainanega Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte. Thank you so much, Hannah. Hannah, we're focusing today on interlacings, which you created for Custom Made, an exhibition curated by Tanya Willard at the Kamloops Art Gallery in 2015. Can you tell us about interlacings? I guess to visually describe interlacings, it's a projected video and it's based on a William Morris carpet. I guess I could kind of scroll back and say when Tanya first approached me about the exhibition, she had another piece in mind that I'd done a few years before, quite a few years before, one of my earlier pieces. And it was a projection of a William Morris carpet onto a bed of pine needles. I didn't want to recreate the same work. I wanted to show something new. So I said, well, if I was going to recreate something, what would interest me would be to do sort of an an animation, something moving with the uh, William Morris idea. In earlier work, I've I've done I I guess researched more and worked more with the designs of William Morris. Um, in part, it spoke to kind of the the English side of my heritage, the background. When I was growing up, my we grew up in a, a Victorian home that had kind of been abandoned as it wasn't sort of chic anymore. So, but I was the wallpaper helper for my for my mother, and well, we couldn't afford. William Morris wallpaper, but at the same time, she tried to get kind of Victorian era stuff. And I, and I guess just being an artist, art school, you know, got to know about William Morris and research him a little bit more. I was really interested in his practices of bringing back sort of mastery to the to, to the design, trying to make it accessible to, to all. And then also the principle of having, of building a, a, an iconography or a, a visual language based in indigenous uh, flora and fauna of Great Britain, of England, Scotland, and, and the rest of it. So with those ideas in mind in this animation, I thought about the, the carpet and the fact, well, it's on the ground, and thinking about food and uh, harvesting food and, and flowers and this sort of thing. Tanya actually is uh, was a, was a great resource. She's she's very knowledgeable about uh, the, the the different food food gathering practices for the Sukhwapam people in her territory, and you know helped me out to to research this. So I wanted the food to be particular to the territory because uh, I always feel sort of strongly when I do an installation somewhere that it should relate to the place where it's going to be shown and. Yeah, I started to research these different uh, flowers and, and plants and, and roots often and ended up having the car- the, the final video is sort of this transition from these kind of decorative floral type uh, shapes that are with the original carpet. Though I'm going to say much more simplified than a William Morris carpet because this is myself kind of retracing drawing in order to, to animate them. And uh, those rings, because it's a round carpet, so they're sort of concentric rings, and the rings are gradually replaced by indigenous uh, indigenous plants and, and flowers that are used in the Sikwapam diet, basically. So we uh, then sort of had them kind of spin slowly as if it's like a mandala or something, so it would turn and gradually transition into 
the alternate the alternate rings. So it, it becomes kind of a mesmerizing sort of visual treat for the eyes. And and at the same time, um, I think the thing that that was interesting to me was the idea of making making it for that place, the Sokopim territory, and you know. What would William Morris kind of have thought of that, basically? <laughs> I think this particular carpet is one that wasn't, it is based on an actual carpet. It's a, it is a William Morris company designed carpet. But um, I don't think it was William Morris who designed it himself. At, at one point, his company, you know, got big and he had other people come in. And sometimes and the designs kind of left that specificity and became more sort of fanciful high victoriana where they're they're kind of not things you'd necessarily find in nature which also adds an interesting cohabitation dimension to the the elements in the carpet Uh, i find it really interesting hannah how you're inviting us to think about morris as a creator of indigenous designs in a sense that he's working with elements of his own territory his environment plants and animals and seasons and then uh, people who are familiar, as many people are with William Morris's designs, will be thinking right now berries and strawberries and uh, uh, local birds, British birds. Um, when I look at your piece, uh, which I really appreciate the description you've given for us, I do see this fixed border. And then, as you've noted, these uh, rings uh, moving within. And you have flowers and leaves, berries and roots. Uh, rose hips come to mind when I think about the piece, blueberries uh, specifically. And then, as you've noted, everything's kind of in motion here. They're, they're changing positions. Uh, so nothing's static, nothing's fixed, which is really quite different from a William Morris design. So I was wondering if you were thinking about time or, or seasonality when you were making the piece. Is that important to it? I think time definitely comes into it. In terms of particular seasons, I didn't choose the, uh, the, the, the plants that I worked with according to seasons. They could be completely have different seasons coming together and what it was. I actually was concerned with trying to find the sort of the shapes that would fit well in replacing the floral design that, that it was going to take over in, in between the two different uh, types of, of patterns and, and imagery. But I think that that movement, the circular movement, it is something my, my work is is really is really based in process as, as an inst- in, in, in general as an installation artist. It's something where repetition, accumulation, those are things that figure a lot in my work. And um, to me, that comes down to time, basically. It, it is this way of kind of interrupting a narrative that uh, goes from a to be and kind of takes you takes you out of that so it's sort of the the turning i think becomes just uh an idea where it's talking about about process about about being in motion um honestly if i think about it too i remember being a kid and my parents had an old carpet that i think they inherited from another parent somewhere and walking around the borders and just looking down at the flowers as a kid, <laughs> just being one of the games I'd play with myself to sort of pass the time sometimes and, and kind of get lost in the imagery. So I think when I when I see those sorts of, of carpets, those elaborate designs, that's that's what I think of. 
Maybe we could talk a little bit about carpet then, Hannah, because your work is projected on the ground. And I'm thinking about the way in which Morris and the makers that he worked with were trying to make something very functional, sturdy and lasting, like the carpet you walked around as a child. But your piece is, is not permanent and it's, it's not static. It's, it's very different in that sense. Could I, could I ask you to comment on that? I think, I think something for me that, uh, that when I think of uh, William Morris, it is functional because I guess it's, you know, craft. But I also think beauty. He's really working with ideas of beauty and, and rewriting what is considered beauty. And I think I do that within my installations as well. I, I kind of privilege a, an idea of beauty. Um, and it's a way of bringing people in to work, to, to engage with the work in part. And at the same time, in almost all my installations, there's an idea of impermanence that they're not meant to last. In part, they can be they can be fragile. They're not fixed in place. I think of that as being as a part of installation versus sculpture, where it is really installed in space. But I also think, it, in in part, I use beauty and the idea of the fragility of the work to engage to engage and reach out to those who are going to interact with it, uh, with the viewer, where they, if they're going to experience the work, they need to take on a certain responsibility in, and, and have a relationship with the work in order for the work to continue to exist. So I, I kind of, I guess, use that as, as a strategy to, to, to bring them in. And I hope that in engaging with the work, then they'll start to consider some of the ideas that I'm talking about in the work. I think there's also, there's also that, that basic uh, idea that things aren't meant to last. Uh, for Indigenous art, often it's, it's meant to go back to ground as opposed to be preserved in a museum necessarily. Here I'm thinking West Coast, uh, totem poles, house poles, that sort of thing, obviously. But I mean, there's so many more examples than just that. But it's, it's the idea of impermanence and, and beauty as being impermanent. And that, again, underlines the idea of time right? It's, it's temporal. It's not existing, not meant to exist forever. Hannah, as a last question, I'm wondering if we could circle back to ideas around proximity and distance. And I'm thinking about the way in which interlacings responds to a very specific local space, the territory in which the work was exhibited. Um, but at the same time, it, it's also you know, reaching quite a distance, both in time and space to William Morris. There's, there's something very complicated about that. And I, I wondered if you could speak to that. I hadn't really thought about that before. It's funny, though, because um, William Morris is not far away. We're very colonial, aren't we? I mean, <laughs> look who I'm talking to. You're a part of the Victorian society, right? The, so it's, um, and, and I think Tanya, even told me she she was she was very she's like you won't believe this I had someone call me who said they have a William Morris piece in their in their place and they want to come see this or something like you know there there was immediately someone in Kamloops that uh, that had a connection so I I think uh, it, there's a colonial history a colonial relationship that is still very present whether you know or don't know William Morris, you'd sort of recognize that kind of a carpet still. You'd sort of know it's coming. It's, it's a British thing. It's, it's coming from that perspective, right? So 
and bringing them together, well, there's, there's a long history, a long relationship between the British colonizers and indigenous peoples um, with the land, with the people, with, with the place. So I think there, there's, it's, it's a different way perhaps of looking at it. You know, um, I'm not necessarily uh, calling out colonial relationships in, in this work, but there's, there's something to think about in, in bringing them together. There's, there's a relationship to think about with what has has uh, been left and what's been changed and how it's been changed, how they interact together. It's, it's sort of subtle, but um, I think it's an interesting place to, to find oneself to, to, to look at these things. Hannah, you give us a great deal to think about with this piece, and I thank you very much for this conversation. Yankoa, you're very welcome. Thank you to Morna, Sandra, and Hannah for their contributions to this episode. To learn more about the topics explored by our guests, please visit the Crafting Communities website, craftingcommunities.net. You'll find links to suggested readings and resources, including links to images of the ladies' carpet, Hannah Claus's interlacings, and Sandra Kloak's hair work. Thank you to Anne Hung and Jesse Cron for their work on this episode's segments. Thank you also to Natalie Lovetri for her transcription of this episode, and to Madison George Burlett for her digital media work. Anne and Madison contributed to this podcast from Victoria, British Columbia, unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, traditional land of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples. Jesse, Natalie, and I worked on this episode in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. We welcome your feedback. Email us at crafting at uvic.ca and follow us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. We look forward to sharing a new episode of Victorian Samplings with you soon.